This podcast brought to you by ACES, the American Society of Information Science and Technology, the Society for Information Professionals, by the IA Summit, the premier gathering place for information architects and other user experience professionals, by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesnarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure and Morin for sponsoring Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IA Summit. Lead Information Architect at Vanguard's User Experience Group, Andrew Hinton, provides engaging examples, including Mr. Spock, a speeding trolley, and a data urinal, illustrating how language powerfully affects context, and vice versa. Andrew connects this understanding with real-life IA design issues, such as Twitter syntax and Facebook's beacon, and challenges us to think more carefully about how we shape context in the digital dimension. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers! So thank you for coming. Um, this talk is about context. It's about how context has been disrupted uh, by, by what I'm calling here digital space. I don't know, we need a word for this stuff, um, this digital space thing. Um, digital space doesn't quite seem to do it. Cyberspace is sort of old hat. Um, uh, you know, I've been toying with metaspace, but it's already being used in some other areas. So anyway, um, tossing that out there, work on that. Um, be, uh, but first, I wanna tell you about this amazing fake news uh, that's coming out of Vegas, out of uh, Las Vegas, which has a sort of thematic con connection to Elvis's hometown, right? So, but okay, yeah. Actually, that has nothing to do with it. But uh, as you know, Las Vegas is America's playground for grown-ups. It turns out that Las Vegas has had a dip in tourism and they're wanting to enhance their service model. So some brilliant uh, people from, I won't name the department, uh, have come up with a way to uh, surprise its visitors with a whole new, fun, sort of social program. First, they're going to watch you as you spend money in Vegas. They're going to watch everything you spend money on in Vegas via the security cameras that are already in Vegas all over the place. But they're just adding this new layer of functionality, wow factor, if you will. And, uh, and they'll also be transcribing everything that you spend money on. They're going to keep a nice line-by-line -line record of everything you do in the city. Um, probably the equipment would be a little more updated than, than what you see here. Um, the products you buy, the shows that you see, the services you may acquire, uh, everything that you spend money on, cash, credit, check, or money order, or barter, will be captured and transcribed. Uh, oh, but it gets better, okay, because you're, you're really going to love this. Then what they do is they go into your hotel room, and they find your address book, which I'm sure looks exactly like that, uh, and uh, everybody that's in it, uh, which who, is, who are obviously all your friends, your very close friends, right, who are all, everybody in your address book is, uh, they're going to grab that thing and they're going to copy down all the contact information for everybody you know. And then what they're going to do is they're going to send a notice to everybody you know every time you buy anything in Vegas, right? Isn't that cool? What? Well, who, tell me, who, who would love to have that service when they go to Vegas? Nobody? You guys, God, you're so, no, uh, that, no, it's not. Nobody wants that. Uh, and obviously, like I said, this story is not real, uh, but it is because this is what happened on Facebook. Uh, how many of you have heard of Beacon, the Facebook service? Okay, so Beacon was a service Facebook launched with very little warning. Basically, everything that you bought at a, uh, at a uh, um, connected partner venue, site, store would show up in your newsfeed and the newsfeeds of your friends. So everything you bought, right, at Amazon, Zappos, uh, I don't know if the, what else was on there, but all these other stores. They assumed that this was something everybody was just going to love. And uh, essentially, it was a recommendation engine, right, that was going to give people an idea of, well, if my friends bought that, maybe I should buy one too. Um, but this was an awfully convenient thing for them to assume because really it kind of fit into their whole marketing model. Um, but unlike Vegas, where it would have taken a major expense, a lot of physical work to create the infrastructure, not to mention a sort of radical overhaul of Nevada, Nevada privacy laws, right? And there would have been news everywhere about this. Everybody would have seen it coming. It would have cost a lot of money, a lot of time. Uh, at Facebook, this feature just meant somebody had to write some code and flip the switch. That's all it took. And suddenly, you were in a very different place than you thought you were in. 
So what was the outcome? It caused a giant user revolt, uh, a lot of controversy. Um, why? Because the nice people at Facebook did not comprehend a lot of things about their user base. They made a lot of assumptions about their users' context. For one thing, Facebook took great liberties with what the word friend means. Friend, right? Um, and people recoiled in horror because this lumbering creature had invaded their privacy. It had connected things that many users did not want connected. If you've seen Frankenstein, you know this scene does not end well. Now here's another story. I really love this story. This is a urinal. Does anyone recognize this urinal? Okay. This is also, according to uh, most, most uh, art historians and experts, um, the most influential work of art of the 20th century. Influential, not prettiest, right? Not most inspiring, most influential. And why is that? Well, to be exact, it's a urinal that Marcel Duchamp submitted to an art show in 1917. He didn't just submit it, though. He scrawled R. Mutt 1917 on the side, which you can kind of see there. And, uh, and it, like an artist's signature, and he called it Fountain. He put it on a pedestal, and then he submitted it to the art show. It was a splendid act of Dada, or Dadaism, uh, which um, Professor Wesch's talk earlier uh, showed us a lot of sort of like 21st century things in the spirit, like the dancing uh, you know, male members uh, in Second Life. Um, so it, was, it, ended up, it ended up being more than just a joke. I mean, this was sort of early 20th century participatory, playful, um, kind of culture hacking, right? This is what Duchamp was doing. He was hacking the culture. He was, he was disrupting people's expectations about Western art and Western culture because uh, World War I had just happened and the Dadaists were like, screw all your values and all your morals and all your priorities because they obviously don't work, so we're here to upend them. Um, so it was like, uh, what was the site for, um, I, just, I know what it is, but anyway, it was like that site, but in the 19-teens. Um, you know what I mean. You know where I'm going. Um, so he labeled it, and he put it in a different context, on a pedestal, and submitted it to an art show. Duchamp changed the frame of reference for the object, and it was a challenge against everything that had come before, every cultural assumption or taboo. It eventually affected how people thought about high art, low art, culture, everything. So these issues of language and context have can have really history-changing effects. Um, here's a graphic that was on Boingbong not that long ago. Uh, notice this sort of grainy satellite photo. The labels say that there's a decontamination vehicle, a security post, and a large chemical munitions bunker. Um, so immediately I'm thinking, well, let's bomb that. <laughs> let's get rid of that thing. I don't like that. Nobody should have that. Uh, well, that's enough to convince anybody that there's trouble afoot, right? The real trouble is that what's afoot is the language, because this can just as easily be a delivery truck, an SUV, and an IHOP. Now, you know, whether you like IHOP or not, if you think their food is really terrible, it's not, it's not toxic chemical munitions. <laughs> it's not that bad. Um, maybe later it gets that bad, but not in the actual restaurant. Here's another uh, fun thing about context. This is the trolley conundrum. Um, and by the way, everything you see here, I've basically learned in podcasts, so I'm, I'm not an expert on any of this stuff. Uh, imagine there's a trolley, and it's going really fast, uh, but its brakes are out, and it is racing down the tracks. And you, lucky you, you happen to be standing by there, right by the tracks, and you can see that the trolley is hurtling toward a fork in the track, and on one side of the fork, there's someone lying in the track unconscious. And... Uh, on the other side of the fork, there are five people lying on the track unconscious. Okay? Now, why they're unconscious, we don't know. Maybe there was a rave there last night in the train yard. Um, regardless, not only are you witness to this impending catastrophe, you also happen to be the only person within reach of a lever, which you see next to you, uh, right there, that happens to control which fork the trolley will take. Right now, it's set to go down the side that's surely going to kill five innocent adorably passed out ravers. Uh, and on the other side, there's only one of them. So if you pull it, you're going to save on a, a net of four lives. Do you pull the lever? Well, uh, in experiments where huge samples of people were asked this question, and this is a very common psychology, situational ethics question, um, nine out of ten people say, 
yeah, I, I guess I'd have to pull the lever. I mean, not like joyfully, but they're like, yeah, I guess I would do it. Well, that's fascinating, but that's not all. Because if you ask a bunch of other people a very similar question, which is this, there's a similar problem with just a few differences. So here's the trolley hurling down the track, only there's just one track this time, and the five unconscious people are lying on it. And this time, you're not on the side with a lever, you're standing on an overpass above the track. And there's a huge like bodybuilder, like, like 375, right, standing on the overpass. And um, he's, he's like Andre the Giant size, right? And he's teetering over there, he's looking at, he's teetering over. You just know that, that you, you're a tiny, wimpy person. If you, if you threw your own life in, in front of the trolley, it would never stop it. But you know that this guy, if he fell down there, it would definitely stop it. And you know if you just, you know, did this, oh, excuse me, he would fall, right? And he would stop the trolley and save five people. Well, would you do that? Nine out of ten people say, no, I could not push this person to his death. Well, that's strange. It's the same effect, right? Um... Only recently are scientists really starting to figure out what's going on when we're making these sorts of decisions. And it has to do with brains. Now, uh, some scientists have been working on why we do this, and they think they have some answers. And it turns out that when you ask the trolley conundrum of people who are in an fMRI scan, the, these things are this, the favorite toy now of science. Like, they're, they're throwing everything at them. You know, it's like when you were a kid and you first discovered Xerox copiers. You know, and you were like, oh, let's see what this looks like, right? <laughs> and that's what they're doing. They're like, oh, let's put a rat in there. Let's uh, put somebody in there and make them do a jig. Um, so, uh, but they're doing things like this. So they're putting people in there, and they're asking them these, these sorts of questions. Each of the trolley, the sides of the trolley conundrum is, is affecting the brain differently. Our frontal lobes are mostly, uh, are the most recently evolved part. Uh, they house our more rational, logical processes. This tends to engage the version involving the lever because it's sort of a cost-benefit analysis and we're more physically removed from the results of our action. Pulling a lever is not a visceral or intimate act like pushing bodily another human being. So let's say this is sort of the Spock side. Why, yes, I would pull the lever. That, that sounded totally not like Spock, did it? Um, <laughs> Uh, and then there's the, uh, I, think, I think I was doing Eddie Izzard doing Sean Connery. Um, anyway, then there's the, uh, the limbic system, which is quite ancient. It's, it's, it's back in there from back when we used to like swim in the ocean and, or, uh, you know, like eat flies off the ground and stuff. Um, it handles a lot of stuff like breathing, bodily functions, but it also handles instinctive things like fear, revulsion, and pleasure. And an awful lot of our behavior really, now this is important, a lot of our behavior, what we're discovering in brain science, me and all the other fake brain scientists, um, what we're discovering, we listen to podcasts about this, uh, what, what we're discovering is that, um, what we're discovering is that uh, maybe just like the vast majority of the stuff that we do on a day-to-day -day basis is really coming out of these deep, sort of roiling, weird, ancient, jungly like, like recesses in our brains. And then this little flap, this frontal lobe thing that we've evolved in the, in the very recent human future, um, or human history, um, is, uh, is, is sort of catching it and making sense of it for us. So like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll say, I'm gonna drink this water, right? And, okay. Um, but I didn't like do a cost-benefit analysis just now to do that. Uh, but I can easily explain to you all the reasons why I did while well, I was thirsty and I picked it up and I was careful. And, but none of that stuff was actually happening because my frontal lobe was telling me to do it. Um, anyway, so uh, just to keep the metaphor clear, let's say that this is the Captain Kirk side of things. So what these scientists contend is that when we encounter a problem like this, we'd like to think that we're very rational, um, but in fact, uh, both of these parts of the brain are heavily engaged and they have to fight it out to see which side is going to win, as illustrated here. <laughs> or, or better yet. Can you hear that? There you go. So. This is human morality in action. <laughs> of course, you have to see Kirk's nipples at some point in the fight. All right. So let's move on to something more civilized. Um, <laughs> that's just the most awesome clip ever. Um, 
So one thing this tells us is that language actually shapes the way we perceive reality in a very deep biological, neurological way. Another study using the same fMRI scans, those are so fun, uh, tested how people would respond to wine. They had subjects take two tastes of wine while being scanned, and they told them that one was this really inexpensive cheapo wine, and the other was a very high-priced, fine, expensive wine that won a lot of awards. Actually, I think all they told them was the price. Um, people not only said that they thought the expensive wine was more delicious, but according to the fMRI scans, their brains reacted in very different ways. The cheap wine was okay. Oops. Oh, I have to start over now. Okay. Uh, the, um, the cheap wine was okay, but uh, it didn't really cause that much activity. You can see we're saying meh, which apparently was coined sometime in the 90s. Um, <laughs> according to Professor Wesch. And uh, the expensive wine lit up more of the brain's pleasure centers, and, and, and literally. And uh, the funny thing is that uh, it's the same wine, right? Same wine. So the next time you think, oh, I'm going to spend 50 bucks on this bottle because I bet it's really good, there are two problems with that. One is, um, well, it, it might not really be chemically, it might be chemically uh, uh, substantially the same as the $6 bottle of wine. But the problem is that Something about it being 50 bucks, literally, in reality, does make it taste better, even though the physical reality of it is no different, okay? My word, isn't that strange? How deeply our experience our, our, and meaning can change just because of a label on something. Uh, well, you're all information architects. You label stuff for a living. For a, a, I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying things, right? But... So this is important. This is an important thing to think about. These studies are teaching us a lot about the power of context and language. And the fact is that context, to some degree, is biological for us, and our brains can respond very differently to just a few changes in context. Um, so these things that, uh, that people were hearing uh, for the, uh, <clears throat> the trolley conundrum and the things that people were hearing for the wine tasting were just language. That's all, that, all it was. You weren't putting somebody on a train track. Uh, you weren't... Uh, making them have to pull a lever. Um, you weren't actually even changing the wine. All you were doing was labeling it with something. So context and language are highly symbiotic. Um, they, uh, they, they affect each other very, very deeply in ways that we don't really intuitively understand. <clears throat> this is Boylan Heights. It's a historic neighborhood in Raleigh, North Carolina. And on the left is the map snapped from Google Maps. Maps are a very specialized form of language that we use to form our understanding of geographic contexts. And on the right is a satellite view with the Boylan Heights area highlighted. Now, in the physical world, map and landscape are not the same thing, at least not literally. But in every way except literally, the more you sort of look at all this, the more they start to blur. When you look at this photograph of Boylan Heights and you layer it with these streets, you realize that, well, you already had a filter. When you were looking at the satellite picture, you're already thinking of it as a map. You know, when you're looking at satellite pictures, we've been sort of trained culturally to look at these streets and go, okay, we, we view it as a map of streets, basically. Everything else is sort of this undifferentiated mass of houses and people and, and trees and stuff. Well, uh, there's something special about Boylan Heights. It was the subject of a sort of obsession of a writer, artist, and professor of geography named Dennis Wood. And it was where he lived when he was teaching at uh, North Carolina State University. And some of you may have heard about this on This American Life. They've played it a couple times. It's really, really good. Another podcast. Um, so Wood is something of an artist philosopher, and for a while he had a project going where he mapped his neighborhood in some really unconventional, interesting ways. There's the map of the overhead lines. So if you were electricity, this is how you would understand Boylan Heights. Um, the street signs. There's an underground map showing sewer and water lines and cisterns. If you were water, this is how you would experience Boylan Heights. There's a street lights map showing where light divides darkness after sundown. There's the car spaces map. Um, now, this is interesting. This is the mentions in the newsletter map that tracked mentions of certain addresses in the neighborhood newsletter over the years. Interestingly, no matter who lived in the homes that are being mentioned a lot, it didn't matter who lived there, they were the same homes being mentioned a lot in the newsletter, right? So does this mean that certain homes just command more attention? Does it mean that particular homes attract certain kind of owners? Interesting question. All the, all the conceptual mapping, by the way, that we do in our, in, in our work uh, is trying to get at similar kinds of answers, right? Well, this is my favorite. It's uh, the porches in the neighborhood where you find one or more jack-o'-lanterns. And interestingly, it corresponds highly to the mentions in the newsletter map. 
Interesting. So when you correlate these two things, you realize, huh, people who sort of like to be very participatory, who like to be kind of front and center in the neighborhood, maybe they're attracted to these corner lots, et cetera. Interesting. Um, taken together, these maps are really, really enlightening, because after all, a neighborhood isn't just streets. A neighborhood is made of neighbors. And the streets are just one very thin slice of what that place means to human beings. What these maps remind us of is that we often receive messages about context without really thinking and without questioning what other experience or wisdom might be hidden from us because we haven't looked or we haven't asked. It's not the map's fault. The map is just doing its job. It's doing the work the maker assumed it needed to do. A map can't do everything. It can't show you everything because if it did, it would be the landscape and then it wouldn't be a map anymore. So the territory was there first and the map came later, but the map has a lot of power over how we understand the territory, which is really basically the same thing as saying what uh, Michael Wesch was saying earlier, which is that um, the contexts or the places or the, actually I can't remember exactly what he said, but basically that these things that we make are, uh, shape us and then we shape them and it goes like that. Dennis Wood says that maps, uh, the map's effectiveness is a consequence of the selectivity or interest with which it brings the past to bear on the present. Maps work by serving interests. There are always interests behind the creation of them. So that's not bad, it's just what makes a map a map. And every time we shape language with context, it's serving some interest, whether consciously, explicitly or not. And I suspect that more often than not, when we describe context with language, we don't consider the options because they have not occurred to us. So now you may be wondering uh, when we're going to get to the digital part of this talk. Uh, well, online we have a lot of maps that, we shape, that shape how we understand the things that they describe, but online it gets weirder. Who's heard of a MUD, a multi-user domain, or a multi-user dungeon? Okay, good. So I'm not alone, okay. Uh, I had not log logged into one of these things in years, and so I, in my room I, I logged into this one just so I could get a screen grab. So basically, um, these are the great granddaddies of like uh, World of Warcraft and Second Life, but it's all text. And uh, you navigate and play by a command line. Uh, you type north, south, whatever, right? It's all text. Now, I bring them up because they illustrate something very important about digital space. To make a mud or a mush or a moo, all the various flavors of, of these things, you start by making rooms. And a room is basically just a space, okay? It's a particular context. So, uh, and what you do is you use a command such as dig. Dig, and then you script out all the things about the context about the room, like it's going to have an, an exit here that's going to go to this, it's going to link to this, it's going to look like this. And then it's all just text. And then when somebody who's playing the, uh, the, the grid or the, or the, the place, they, when they enter it, and then they experience it, right? Um, MUDs uh, and their kin have their own script language for their creation. And what you create ends up being experienced like a series of connected spaces, contexts, subcontexts, all making up the larger context of the MUD. This is a map of just part of a long-time MUD based on the Discworld uh, novels, which is still out there. It's the one I got that screen, that screen grab from. So even though I'm showing you a map here, which is just another language artifact, the visual is meant to evoke the fact that there is a context being created with this language. But unlike Boylan Heights, there's no physical context with which to compare this map. This map is a map of another map, right? That's just experienced a little differently. In digital space, map creates the territory, literally. So um, I know most of you, or actually more than you, or more of you than I realized, are we're familiar with MUDs and MOOs, uh, but the web is really not that different. So um, on the web, we make the territories, the context, by mapping them, and the map becomes its own territory and vice versa. So at Google, there's a site map, and a site map represents the space you're in, right? But unlike regular maps, when you click this one, you actually go to the place that you're, that's being described. So there are these weird fuzzy boundaries happening in digital space between the real and the virtual. So let's say you're interested in how saddles are made. And so you search for leatherworking on Google. Well, if you can, I don't know if you can see that, but what it brings up is leatherworking in World of Warcraft. Um, now, you know, you gotta wonder, like, what's up with this? Uh, these are all about how to make leather goods in the land of Azeroth. Um, why? Well, because there's eight million or more, at last count, uh, people playing this game. And a lot of them, frankly, want to know how to make a death mantle chest guard. <laughs> so remember, as Dennis Wood told us earlier, maps, serve, maps work by serving interests, right? So online, uh, who, wherever the, the, the sort of center of gravity of interests are, that's where 
the, the maps are going to, that's how the maps are going to behave. Um, early on in Wikipedia's history, the, uh, the, the, there, like, the, there was like 10 times more pages for a while there on like the, the wars in the Star Trek universe than there were on like the Peloponnesian Wars, um, just because there were a lot of geeks on there. So if this makes you feel a little bit dizzy, it should, because it's the sort of vertigo that you get when you realize that we're living in one, more than one place at the same time. Um, it's less and less exclusively physical, this world that we're in. And just as I've been speaking, a lot of you have probably been text messaging or Twittering or chatting or whatever. Um, increasingly, we're sort of walking around in many contexts at once that are all blurring together. And, and Michael Wesch was talking about this as being context collapse. Um, for me, it's not exactly collapse because that makes it sound really apocalyptic, although it's, it, it is basically collapse. But it's, it's, it's a sort of readjustment, a sort of radical readjustment of context that we still really don't have our heads around. Um, this dimension, this sort of uh, information dimension, is really screwing up what we mean by when we say the word here. Because if you're in Twitter right now and you've got friends who are not in this room, they think of you as being here on Twitter. Um, how many of you have seen one of your, I'm assuming you're all, probably not all of, you, all of you are on Twitter and I actually recommend stay away from it because it's, it'll just destroy hours of your day. Um, but but uh, uh, like even on Twitter, like you'll see people uh, uh, go away and say, I'm, I'm leaving for a little while, I'm going offline, and they'll come back and say, I'm back. And you're like, back where? You know, because it's not even like IRC or, or a chat room where there's one room. I mean, it's all these different multivariate versions of rooms that people have that they're looking at. We'll talk about Twitter again in a little bit. Um, we have, we're in this weird situation where we have this fuzzy human stuff that we're trying to make into data. Uh, but the data, these machines that we make, screen out a lot of human ambiguities. It loses a lot of meaning along the way. Um, if you take something like love... And then you go to Facebook and you say, well, I'm in a love relationship. Um, well, you've got six mutually exclusive choices here. The computer is saying, you have to be one of these. And um, even though in public we might always pretty much describe ourselves as one of these, in reality we might be some mixture of them, right? Um, or we might not really be ready to, to uh, actually instantiate the fact that I'm engaged just yet, like in Facebook, right? It really brings up some conversations you have to have with your partner. Um, so, uh, <laughs> digital space tends to be very narrow in its definitions, and it takes words that have a lot of richness and it truncates their meanings into these logical absolutes. So, again, language shapes context, shapes language, um, but in this world of like pure context and pure language, it can get kind of crazy. Digital space is pretty ruthless about interpreting our ambiguities, and that can be a problem because our lives and our language are full of ambiguity. There's the classic example from the book, Eat, Shoots, and Leaves, all about grammar and syntax. This phrase can be understood in a couple of different ways. Um, there's the panda, the cute panda, eating bamboo shoots and bamboo leaves. Um, or if you just add a comma, suddenly you're dealing with something kind of surreal and violent, right? Um, now, just one little typo in a letter or email to one of you where I made this typo isn't really going to confuse you because there's more context around it where you're going to go, oh, well, that's just a, just a typo. But computers don't understand that context unless we tell them to, and that's extremely hard to do. Um, it's still very rudimentary even with the advances that we've made. I say we as if I'm one of these scientists doing this, and I'm not. Um, we as, you know, thoughtful people. Um, so. What I'm getting at here is that whereas something as small as a comma can radically change the meaning of language on a page in digital space, something that small can radically change the meaning of the space. So, for example, in physical space, there's an obvious difference between a little nook in the corner of a room where I can whisper to someone a private interchange and compare that to a stage in front of thousands of people where a microphone announces to all of them everything that you're going to say. There's a pretty obvious difference there. It would be really hard to confuse these two places. It would be really, really hard to suddenly change from one to the other, right? Um, to, uh, uh, you'd have to like tear down the alcove, build a stadium, invite a bunch of people, and then suddenly they're there, right? Well, you can't actually physically do that. But on Twitter, you sort of have both options. Um, you've got the hidden nook, which is the D for a direct message to someone, or you can sort of just do a reply, which everybody's gonna see, okay? In the physical world, it's hard to mistake one for the other or do one over the other in haste, but on Twitter, it's incredibly easy to make this mistake. This is just not so obvious. 
but you are literally changing. Remember what I said about the wine labels and the, and the brains? Like our, our experience of reality is so bound up with these things that we are literally shaping the realities of human beings when we are creating these digitally linked, labeled, shaped contexts. But I just don't think that we've been taking it seriously enough, really, because we, we tend to think of, well, it's just the web. It's just this medium. Um, I'm sure everybody here is at Reply All at some time. So even if you're on Twitter, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Like you actually did the Reply All thing. It can be very disorienting. Um, context really tends to shape identity as well. And that's why we get these weird buzzy feelings in our head when we're stuck in these uh, confused situations. So if you think of the garden variety office building, an office typically has a particular architecture, has specific design choices that afford certain kinds of things. In a nightclub, it affords completely different things because the layout is different, the equipment's different, the lighting's different, the bathrooms are situated differently, there's a bar, um, you know, all these things. Of course, if you were in a startup like 10 years ago, maybe you had a bar, but, but that all went away. Um, so, uh, now, when you're at the office, you're wearing your office hat, right? And you're sort of playing that role. It's not fake. You're not pretending. It's just that it's just a side of you that you kind of turn on there. If you go to like a nightclub or wherever you like to spend your evenings, um, you might have a completely different side of yourself, right? You go bowling with friends or whatever. Um, and how many of you have had the, 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 you know, weird sort of feeling of like, I'm in this other place and somebody from my workplace is suddenly there in front of me saying hi. And it's like, Wait, I'm not sure if I recognize, I know this person. Who is and then you realize, oh, oh, I work with them. But you don't recognize them right away because where you know them from a different context. And, and their identity in your head is very bound up in that context. And yours is too. Um, so it can be kind of awkward and it gives you this weird sense of vertigo. You know, because these are parts of yourself rubbing up against each other in ways that you're not used to. Well, um, now, online, we're offered this plethora of choices for extending and refining the facets of our identities, and each has its own architecture that shapes who you are when you're there. So at LinkedIn, you have really different choices than at chemistry. LinkedIn will ask you about your job history, not about what you like to do on a date. Chemistry is the other way around. All of these architectures afford certain sorts of identities and facets of ourselves, and that brings us a lot of challenges when it comes to crossovers of contexts. We might not want our office mates to know what nightclubs we frequent or who we're dating or what we like to do on a date. Um, but unlike an office or a nightclub or a church or Vegas, these are not the physical places we're used to. These can cross over or change at a moment's notice. Lots of people, um, I know a lot of people who started out using Facebook when they were in school. And um, I didn't because I'm too old for that. But, uh, but when they were in school, and uh, the strong implication was nobody is going to be here except your classmates. And even now, there are core pieces of the way Facebook functions structurally, architecturally, that still sort of have that legacy assumption. Now they're trying to layer on all this other stuff. But almost overnight, Facebook changed into, oh, really, we're just sort of an everybody and everything space, right? And all the people who were like students on there, and we had younger people in our office who I remember kind of going, oh, I've got pictures on there I really should take down because all my coworkers now are trying to link to me. You know, my daughter, my 13-year-old daughter tried to link to me recently, and I didn't have anything embarrassing up there, but I did, I did do a double take. I was like, uh, you, know, you know, what do I have up there? Um, who, am I, who am I linked to? Because um, I couldn't tell her, no, honey, I'm not going to be your friend on Facebook. <laughs> you can't do that. Um, so again, you get this weird identity vertigo. Like now, people I knew from 20 years ago are putting pictures of me as a 14-year-old, you know, because I happen to be standing in a group photo of some kind. All these people who didn't give a damn about me 20 years ago are putting pictures of me up and carefully labeling them and linking them to my profile. And I'm like, you know what? I, I worked damn hard for 20 years to get separated from the me that was 17 years old. You know, more than 20 years now. Um, like, uh, I, I, I deserve to have that in the past, right? All those people, all those things, I would have kept up with you if I'd cared, but I don't. <laughs> and, um, and yet, here it comes, you know? So, um, again, we get this weird sense of vertigo. We, we'd like to think that our identities are not so dependent on the context we're in or the people we're around, but as we found out with the whole fMRI scanning thing, it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, the way we perceive reality is very much driven by a lot of fluid things. Um, science and philosophy have been telling us, especially the philosophers, have been telling us for a generation or more now that, uh, objectively speaking, we're just not all that solid. 
in terms of identity. We're constructed from the interactions, memories, and stories around us. The self is a sort of useful illusion, a reification that we depend upon for getting along in the world, right? We sort of have to think of ourselves as this reified self uh, in order to just get along, but it's actually multi-layered, multifaceted. Here's another uh, Marcel Duchamp creation, Nude Descending a Staircase, and it also prefigured this sort of weird time-space displaced dimension that we've created for ourselves, where our identities are sliced and frozen in time and spread across space. Our identities are inextricably bound up in the spaces and systems that we make for ourselves, because most of the planet now is living in environments that human beings made, uh, rather than just that emerged from nature. Sherry Turkle, a professor and writer at MIT, has been exploring this issue a long time. Back in 95, she wrote uh, a book called Life on the Screen, and she explained how the internet had brought it to a, to a sort of literal culmination of what people like Lacan, Foucault, and Levi-Strauss have been saying about us all along. Uh, she described the self as a multiple distributed system, a decentered self that exists in many worlds and plays many roles at the same time a world in which so-called real life is just one more window. And in fact, the ethnographic research she did was in multi-user domains, MUDs, the text thing I showed you earlier, uh, because it really prefigured so much of the sort of uh, indigenous user content, contextual weirdness that we find ourselves in now. Um, our, our esteemed guest, Professor, Professor Wesh, uh, talks about context collapse, um, and he mentioned it in his, in his uh, presentation today. Um, basically, he's, he says this thing about how on the other side of this glass lens is almost everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, even those you've never heard of, billions of potential viewers. This seemingly innocuous, insignificant glass dot is the eyes of the world and the future, and the problem is not lack of context, it is context collapse. Basically, this sort of black hole that sucks everything in and squishes it all up. I don't think that it's collapsing into nothingness. I think it's just collapsing into something radically different. But uh, it's already happened, basically, and yet we don't have the language, we don't have the brain wiring, we don't have the cultural structures uh, to deal with it yet. And we need to maybe intentionally start working on that. Um, I'm gonna hurry through. This, I just think this is, this is an interesting thing to get across because I think it's uh, a lesson we all need to learn as designers, and that is you know, even understanding all this, even if we got it all just right, if we, if we design contexts and connected contexts so that they're just exquisitely like they ought to be, we still really don't have that much control over it. Um, on Twitter, it was originally made to go on your phone, a very narrow aperture experience, a very atomic sort of like uh, one thing at a time piecemeal experience, right, one message at a time. But they were like, well, let's put it on the web, too, because, you know, there's the web, and it'd be nice for people to be able to do some stuff and do their profile and all that there. Um, but it's, it's a linear feed, right? But it's still a fairly narrow aperture. Um, but once people were there, they started using it differently. Like, they started replying with an at symbol because they figured, well, other people are seeing this, too. You know, and uh, it sort of in, it, it caused this whole other sort of way people were using Twitter to emerge. And now there's this abomination called TweetDeck. How many of you use TweetDeck? Okay, stop. Um, no, I'm not going to tell you to stop using TweetDeck, but uh, TweetDeck actually causes people to use Twitter in ways that are completely different than the inherent architecture of Twitter. Like the inherent architecture of Twitter, for example, is if I follow you, then you're going to be in my feed, right? It's, it, if I follow you, you're going to at least show up. Whether I skip your message or not, you're there. And there's sort of, a, sort of a gentleman's bargain, if you will, going on with that. TweetDeck breaks it because you can filter people out. You can put them in groups. And so only read some people and kind of only sometimes read these other people. Um, TweetDeck turns Twitter into this sort of gaming platform where people are uh, trying to create trends and do all this other crazy stuff. It completely changes the way that people behave in the space, right? We're all in here and we're all in the same room. And if one of you started dancing a jig, and screaming at the top of your lungs, we'd all look at you like, dude, you really don't seem to understand the space you're in, you know? <laughs> you ever heard people say, use your inside voice, right? <laughs> um, on Twitter, on Twitter, uh, if, I'm in, if I'm in TweetDeck, it is a space where I can basically be dancing a jig and being an idiot, right? Because that's what it's encouraging me to do. It's encouraging me to do all the other kinds of things. Um, whereas if, if you're the unlucky SOB that's got a phone, where you're getting that person's messages, right? It's like, like every two seconds, you have to turn it off. Um, so it's, it's crazy. Um, anyway, I, I don't mean to totally pick on TweetDeck. Use it if you want to.
Um, but I, I have like this thing about it. So the implications are everywhere. I've really focused a lot on identity and privacy here, but that's mostly in the interest of time. But I want to be sure to mention that the context problem is a lot bigger than that. It affects everything we do. It affects the way we earn, uh, the way we spend money, the way we learn things and read things. You know, uh, the thing about money is that um, the mortgage crisis is a great example of this, that basically you had a situation in the mortgage crisis where people were no longer doing mortgages in the way where it was intimate and visceral. Um, it was so disconnected and attenuated across space and time that um, you basically had people pulling levers very far away from the people that were getting the actual houses, right? So it was very easy to sort of completely misunderstand that context when you were off selling your, your, uh, your packaged up mortgage things. Um, so the context problem exists everywhere we or anything about us can be online. Now that's an important distinction because there are millions of people who were not online on our planet, but the information about them still is. How many of you saw this thing about Darfur that Google put up? You familiar with this? It's a, it's a map that Google partnered with some nonprofits, like the Holocaust Museum, I think, um, to, to show uh, the destruction of villages in Darfur in basically real time, I think, or practically real time. Well, this is an astonishing, powerful example of how radically context has been disrupted for our species. Implicitly, it raises a question of what the human limits are to comprehending context. At what point, no matter how much information we receive, is another context only an abstraction if we can't reach into it and affect, the way, affect it the way that it affects us? You can look at this, but you can't do anything about it in this context. There's no link to click to go to give money. There's no plane ticket to buy to go and try to help out. There's nothing there that really tells you what to do about it. And yet, it's putting this thing in your face. And you just want to be able to like wet your thumb in some water and put the fire out right there on the screen because it's so horrible. But then there's nothing really, you, you can't do that because that's not really it, right? So uh, it's, it's, it's strange. And, um, and I understand why they didn't put links to things because apparently it was like, well, we, do, we can't endorse particular organizations. We can't endorse particular methods. Um, but then it's kind of like, yeah, but... Maybe just one, <laughs> you know? Because uh, imagine all the people that looked at this and maybe could have done something in, in, in the moment. I don't know. So as we've established, language and context shape one another, they especially online where everything is made of language. Um, and, uh, and more and more in physical space where all that language space, that digital space is getting interleaved and interwoven and intertwingled with our physical lives. Um, so you've got... Uh, uh, language, which is basically um, information and the context that's formed from this information, and then you've got context, which is basically sort of the architecture, right? So uh, what I'm talking about here is sort of the very big picture of information architecture. Um, so information architecture is great at findability, but I think even uh, uh, Peter Morville, who coined the term, has been saying for a while that, well, findability is just part of the value proposition of information architecture. It's part of what we're about, but it's not like the whole story. What I'm getting at is that I think that the shape of, the act of shaping digital space with links and language is an architectural act, and it's an act of designing context itself. And that's our medium. Um, but we lack, now when I say our, I mean people who do information architecture. I don't mean our information architects. This is not a turf war, right? This is just me trying to expand what the label means enough to sort of see what it's been doing all along. Like every taxonomy you've ever made, every controlled vocabulary you've ever made has been basically a machine for shaping human context. It's just that we need to understand that in the bigger frame it has a lot more implications than maybe we've thought of before. We lack a suitable language for all this, this dimension of contextual systems. And uh, so as a result, we really lack suitable tools, methods, patterns, and heuristics for thinking about it in this way. Um, now, people are getting started. There's been some progress. Uh, there's uh, a book that I love. It's called Contextual Design. It doesn't talk about it in this philosophical way, but it gives some really great tools for designing with context sort of at the forefront of what you're doing. Um, there are some diagrams and things that uh, my colleagues and I at Vanguard have been working on. Um, Richard Dalton actually has an updated version of this one on the top right as a poster at the conference today. Um, there's some very fine academic work going on that's dealing with context both in the realm of ubiquitous computing and in the growing academic side of information architecture itself. This one is, uh, the, this, this, this is on SlideShare, uh, Luca uh, 
Rosati and uh, Andrea Rasmini uh, worked on this, and they're working on some great stuff. So there, it's happening, right? Uh, but I'm just wanting to sort of shout to the four winds that, uh, hey, everybody, let's, 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 let's all talk about this. You know, let's work on this. I know we have lots of stuff to build for our jobs, but let's also work on this thing. Um, I think that as a community, it's a, it's a great thing to do. So who's going to figure this out? And I just think it's a huge challenge. So it's going to take all of us, um, and let's get to work. Thanks. Hopefully we have a couple minutes for questions. Anybody? It's not a very questiony audience this year, is it? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, so the, I think the question is that um, what about this sort of post once ping many thing, where like you post something in one place and it ends up going all over the place, but then the things that are going all over the place are ending up in contexts where the original sort of context isn't there anymore, and it's like, well, what does that mean? Well. As you were asking the question, I was thinking about the fact that even in newspapers, right, um, for a long time you had all kinds of stories and postings and classified ads and things like, you know, uh, or even now, like in a lot of news weeklies, there's this thing where uh, people can sort of post these things like, hey, I was the guy in the blue fedora and you were the girl in, you know, the high heels, you know, with the jester hat on and uh, we saw each other across the room and send me an email here. <laughs> um, that has nothing to do with me, you know. Um, that had to do with some context that I was not in. Um, but it's sort of this SOS in a bottle, right, out into the world to say, uh, hey, um, maybe you're going to see this. Well, now on Twitter, you know, uh, I see people, like, getting really pissed off at Comcast or Apple or Vanguard, where I work, or whatever. And they're like, hey, uh, at, Van you know, whatever, um, uh, this really screwed up. I hate you, you know. It's similar. I'm not that person. I'm not in their situation. So in some ways, it's, it's some stuff that m published media have sort of has allowed us to do already. It's just like cranked up to 1,000. Um, so I think that what's going on, personally, I think what's going on is we can't stop that stuff. It's just going to happen. It's, it's part of the um, a byproduct of all this wonderful, like, friction-free linking that we can do. Um, we're all sort of learning a new literacy, though. We're sort of learning ways to sort of filter some things out for ourselves and to kind of tell right away, oh, okay, that doesn't have anything to do with me. Um, and we're even learning ways to put the little SOS bottles out there with maybe a little bit of metadata on it that says, okay, this really doesn't have that much to do with you, maybe. Like even the hashtags people are putting on Summit stuff, to some degree, are kind of a signal not only to look at this if you're interested in the Summit, but, well, skim by it if you're not, you know. So uh, I think that we'll see things emerge, because I do think that our attention spans are really limited. Mine's incredibly limited. Um, and uh, uh, so we, we sort of collectively come up with these ways of handling that stuff. Anybody else? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> so, 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 um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the question is, um, and again, I'm saying this so the little recording can get it, uh, that, um, like on Facebook and places like that, like um, there's a sort of tension between the fact that stuff's getting taken to seen out of context, stuff that maybe should be private or whatever it, uh, is now sort of anybody can see it, like an employer might be able to see your drinking pictures from your fraternity days. Um, I wasn't in a fraternity, so I, didn't, I don't have any of those. Um, I just have sitting around and arguing over risk games pictures, <laughs> which, which is not nearly so, I don't know, 
uh, dangerous. Um, anyway, but uh, what was the question? No, I'm kidding. Um, so, so in some ways, I think what we've been hearing is that uh, in some ways that um, uh, that can be uh, may, maybe it can make us all more forgiving over time. Like people kind of get used to the fact that oh yeah, well that happens, you know, big deal. Um, but then on the other hand, maybe it's going to make us all more afraid. Maybe we're going to see that, that we're like, well, I'm not going to post anything. Um, and which is it? And am I positive or negative on it? And I think that um, I'm neutral on it. Um, I, I think that, like I was saying about the context collapsing, like I'm not negative on it. I think that it's just, if you sort of take a evolutionary sort of framework perspective, you know, it's more like um, things are just changing. And uh, uh, we're changing reality with these artificial environments. And... Um, um, where am I going with this? I, I, I think that uh, in some ways it can be positive and in some ways it can be negative. Like I think for a lot of people it makes them shrink back. It makes me shrink back. I mean, I, it makes me be a lot more careful. I don't even go on Facebook partly because I just can't, my attention span can't handle all the inputs of Facebook. Um, even though I deal with many more inputs on the web, on the web they're more differentiated for me. You know, they're separate. Like I do this on Twitter, I do this here, and I do this here. For my head that just works. Um, on, on Facebook, I, you know, I'm getting zombies thrown at me, and, you know, <laughs> on my website, like on my blog, inkblur.com, like, I can post a post, and it can be there on Facebook. I don't even know really where to do that. I mean, uh, if I do, if, you know, it's, so it's just strange. For a lot of people, it's just perfect for them. So I think that for some people, they're going to start kind of being okay with it. For other people, they're going to be more careful, and uh, um, I, I do think that is it, that, too, though, is a kind of new literacy, in a way. It's understanding oh, okay, this thing that I'm seeing didn't happen in any context that really is affecting me or my relationship with this person, right? It's kind of like when you're dating somebody and like all of a sudden you find out all the other people they dated and you get kind of weirded out. You're like, well, you really, you dated those people and well, that guy's a lot, like that guy was a linebacker. I'm not a linebacker, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's this other context. And then after a while you realize, you know what, that actually doesn't have anything to do with me and, and you have to kind of be cool with it. Um, so I think there's sort of an adjustment that people are, will probably have to make. Um, I do think that we're going to have to come up with a language around privacy boundaries. And, well, does this place have that kind of privacy or that kind of privacy? It's kind of like Creative Commons has like three or four different permutations of, uh, of uh, ownership. Um, it'd be interesting to see if we could come up with this sort of standardized way of talking about patterns of privacy. Um, just made that up, but that'd be cool. Anyway, to wrap it up? Okay, it's going to wrap it up. Thanks, everybody. To hear even more presentations from the 2009 IA Summit, point your browser to boxesnarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the 10th Annual IA Summit, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that will be of greatest value to you, our listeners.